you got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter 1. If you uh, don't have your Bibles or aren't familiar with looking up passages, you can, uh, they'll be on the screen uh, behind me, or feel free to access it on your phone uh, as well. We're starting a new series today that I'm very excited about called uh, Upright Views. It's basically this idea. We're going to be studying through the whole book of 1 Peter over the next six to seven weeks, trying to understand how to live life, not just kind of walking through with our heads down, trying to get through another day. Instead, how do we live life in such a way that we, as we look up and have a proper view of God, it changes how we view everything else? This is what the book of First Peter is about. We're going to be really looking at how we have this proper view of God then changes our view of the world. It changes our view of our self. It changes our view of our struggles, of our circumstances, of our relationship, really everything. And it will help us to learn how this upright view can keep us from having a downcast approach to life. Now, typically, I would say this, when we think of the term Christian, usually maybe upright isn't the word that comes to mind. Sometimes it's uptight, right? I mean, how many of you have ever met a Christian who maybe is a a little uptight? I mean, they're just a little tense, a little on guard, and, you know, it's it's just tight. Maybe, you know, things that we can't do, things that we can't say, stuff like that. And the problem is, that this perception is often founded in the reality of how many people who claim to be Christians live. We, we live uptight. People who call themselves Christian can always come across as sometimes more committed to rules and regulations than to their relationship with their creator. They can seem to live in fear instead of freedom. They can worry more about what not to do rather than what they should be doing. They're more scared of sin than they're excited about their salvation. And this type of behavior kind of regulates Christians sometimes with these oddballs in society. I remember this one church that I served at one time. It was my first Sunday at this church. I was a student pastor. I was working with teenagers. And uh, I was excited. I came in, and there were a bunch of teenagers in this church. A lot of them were sitting down front in the church. And it was kind of a cool environment as I walked in. And this lady in the church came up to me, and uh, she grabbed me by the arm. She said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. You know, I She's going to welcome me to the church. Glad you're here. And she said, you see those teenagers down there? I was like, yeah. She said, some of them are wearing hats. I was like, yeah, they are. She's like, can you go do something about that? I was like, no. <laughs> no. Like, I'm just glad they're here. You know, I'm like, but she said, and then she said this, and this is kind of summed up. She's like, if they're going to come to church, they've got to learn to follow the rules. And I was like, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? But that's the way sometimes Christians can come across. When people find out I'm a pastor and that I'm a Christian pastor, like you know, if, you're, if you've been a, a believer long and you've been around people, like sometimes somebody will curse around you or say something that maybe is a little inappropriate or, God forbid, say something sexual around you, and then they look at you like, are you about to lose your mind? Like, are you okay? Are you going to explode? What have you? you? know, they look at me like, you know, what's going to happen to you? And I'm like, look, it's okay. You know, I think those things, sometimes I don't say, you know, it's like, you know, we just, we're not, you know, this idea that we're these uptight things is not what God intended. I want to be very clear today. That's not what true Christianity is. It's not this uptight way of living. Christianity is often characterized as this conservative, uptight religion when in reality according to jesus christianity is the most liberal and loose religion in the world we're called to be liberal with love liberal with grace mercy forgiveness joy and compassion jesus modeled for us not a life where we hold on to things but a life that holds all things loosely 
It's not a call. First Peter does not call us to live uptight. He calls us to live upright. Christianity isn't about creating these closed groups that try to protect and, ex- and restrain the expression of these amazing gifts that God has given us. We aren't coming here on Sunday morning to huddle up and just keep it and go out and then defeat everybody else. That's not. We, we may come here on Sunday morning to huddle up and then go out and share with everyone else. That's what true Christianity is. It's about living life with open hearts and open hands so that we can freely share the life-changing pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that we have found in Christ. That's what Christianity is. Not uptight. It's upright. Uptight Christians think that it's what I do. Life is doing what is right so that then God will love me. But people, Christians that are upright, know that life is about experiencing the love of God so fully that I cannot help but do God and bring pleasure to others. And this is the essence of true Christianity. It isn't bondage or being uptight. It's freedom and living upright. Galatians 5.1 says it this way, and I love how it states it. It says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's basically saying, Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's saying, look, you're free. Go and share that freedom with other people. Don't go back to being uptight people. Go live upright. And we live in freedom. And this is what we're going to focus on today in our brief study of 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to focus on two concepts of Christianity that I think are going to help us experience what it means to live with an upright view. And it's these two concepts of hope and holiness. Hope and holiness. When we read 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to see these two themes playing out over and over again. Now, for most of us, one of those words sounds really good, like hope. I I want some hope in my life. I need a little bit more hope in my life. Like we name our children hope sometimes. Like that's just an exciting word. So we'll take that. But then there's this other word over here called holiness. We don't have many children running around called holiness. You know, it's like, you know, we, we're like, okay, that's a, that's a tough word. That's a, it's a little bit more difficult word. And here's the problem. We usually think for me to get to hope, I've got to go through holiness. The more holy I am, the more hope I will experience. And I want you to understand that's the wrong way the equation works. We don't travel through holiness to get to hope. What happens is this. As we experience hope through Christ in our life and we walk in hope, holiness will then begin to show up in our life. And this is what First Peter chapter 1 teaches us. So as we dive into this, uh, let me, let's look. Let me give you a little background on the book of First Peter. So First Peter 1, 1 says this. Peter an apostle of Christ. So we know Peter wrote the book, and he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it starts with this. He says, Those of you who are exiles. Now, what does that mean to, to live in exile? Does that mean that they were being held captive? They were under arrest? People were hunting them down? That's not what that word exile actually means there. The word exile here would better be translated foreigner or those that are living abroad, outside of the norm. It, it means that there were followers of Jesus that were living outside of Jerusalem and other areas of Israel. 
They were living in places where Christianity wasn't the norm. It wasn't understood. They were basically living outside of the ancient Bible belt. They were an area that, that did not know who Jesus was and did not know what Christianity was. Just like many of us. Today. We're, we're not living in the Bible belt. We're not living in a culture where Christianity is the norm. And so why is this important? Because what Peter teach, is teaching here in this book is not how to live out Christianity while you're being persecuted or hunted down for your faith, but instead he is teaching us how to live simply when we are not the dominant influence in culture. How do you live when Christianity isn't widely accepted or understood? Today I think Peter would say it like this. This book is written to give you instructions not on how to teach New Yorkers how to become Christians, but instead these are instructions to teach you how to be a New Yorker that lives as a Christian. How do you go into a culture, become part of the culture, but live distinctly in that culture? And to me, this is where I think so many Christians have gotten it wrong in recent history. Instead of learning to live as a follower of Christ in a culture, we try to go and change the culture to make it easier for us to live there. So we get mad when culture doesn't bend to us. And we say, you have to change. And throughout history, Christianity has actually had the most impact when we have existed in culture but lived counterculturally. And it's done the most damage when we've tried to impose our beliefs and dogmas on a group of people throughout culture or literal wars. Peter doesn't tell them to run and fight. He tells them to go into culture and live upright. That's what he calls us to do, and that's what hope and holiness are about. Let's look now at 1 Peter 1, 3, and dive into these concepts. Peter says this now in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I want to look at this concept of hope, this living hope that he talks about here. Hope is the beginning point of any understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this passage lays out a pretty clear pathway of how to experience this hope. In the first pathway, it says there's, that there's great mercy, is that God has given us great mercy. While grace is getting something we don't deserve, mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. It's not receiving a just punishment that we do deserve. I remember one time, it was me and the kids in the car when we lived, lived in Georgia, and unwittingly, I didn't mean to do it on purpose, I basically ran right through a stop sign, and a policeman was right there, and he pulled up behind me, and I, my first thought is, I would love to not get a ticket. Like, what can I do to get out of this ticket? But like, I mean, I just, I didn't roll through the stop sign. I flew through the stop sign, and uh, as he walks up, Natalie and PJ are in the back, and before I could say anything, Natalie is like, please, officer, don't take my daddy to jail. Please don't take him to jail. And I was like, oh, that's a good one, Natalie. Like, yeah, that, that'll work, right? And uh, I was like, yeah, and he was like, don't worry, honey. You know, I'm not taking your dad to jail. He's just going to get a ticket today, though. And I was like, oh, man. So I was like, at least I had, maybe I could have gotten a worse uh, thing, but he showed me some mercy. I wish he would have showed me a little bit more mercy. But God has this great mercy. Great mercy. And that word great means it is enough for you. No matter what you've done. No matter what punishment you deserve. There's mercy for you. But it also great means this. Not just you, but for the person sitting next to you. 
and the person sitting next to them. And for the entirety of this world, there is enough mercy for everyone. God's mercy doesn't run out. And he doesn't hold it back from anyone. It is great mercy. And it says that mercy has caused us to be born again. And that's a term that many people label with Christianity. And I I love the idea and the concept of being born again because what it means is this. It's not just a label or a type of Christian. It's actually this idea that you and I are made new, fresh, born again, born new. Peter is saying that, that everything about you that was once broken can be made whole again. I kind of wish I could go back to being born again physically. Like I, I wish, you know, the sore back that I get sometimes wasn't there. I wish my head of hair was back to what it was. You know, I wish I could have worked better on getting some six-pack abs. You know, it's like whatever it was, like you, you wish I could go back and do it again. And that's what Peter is saying here. This mercy actually spiritually leads you to that. There's no sin in your life, nothing that you've ever done, ever experienced, that will define you again. There's nothing from your past, once you experience this mercy, that is your defining characteristic. What is defining about you now is the mercy of God that has made you new and then gives you this, which becomes your defining factor, is living hope. This new birth gives you a way to hope that plays out in your everyday life, moment to moment. You can probably look back over this past week and think about times when you needed some hope. Like just a difficult moment at work, argument with a spouse or disagreement with a child or just a difficulty that popped into your life. Something that you were not expecting and you're like, I just need hope. And the great thing is that there is a living hope that comes from God that walks with us in our life. It's not something one day or in the past that God did for us, it walks with us. We experience hope daily. And how does this happen? It says there in First Peter 3, through the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we celebrate at Easter today. This is all made possible, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ did. He defeated death. The opposite of hope is death, and he defeated that. And that's what makes true hope true. It doesn't depend on me or my behavior, or how few mistakes I made. It's not based on anything of my hands. It is built on the world-changing impact of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This supernatural act that can be both difficult to believe and sometimes impossible to explain is actually what allows us to experience both an unexplainable and unbelievable hope. If I can explain my hope and I can explain it away It doesn't come from anything but me. But this supernatural act of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is difficult to understand and hard to believe creates an unbelievable and unexplainable hope in my life. That's living hope. Now, Peter lays that out in a verse, and here's what I love about Peter. He's a very practical person. Last week, we looked at some of the things in Peter's lives, and we saw... He was very rash sometimes. He would make decisions. But he was like a nuts and bolts guy. He's like, all right, tell me what to do. I'll do it. And so I love even in Peter's letter here, he like throws out this idea of a living hope. But then he's like, all right, let me tell you how this actually plays out in your life on a regular basis. So how does hope play out? Uh, How does it happen? It doesn't just something we talk about. You know, I, I love that he doesn't just say, here's some hope. 
It's a nice word. Keep telling yourself you have it, and maybe it'll show up in your life. Like, I do that in the winter. Here's a, I tell myself when I walk out of my apartment in the winter, I'm warm. It's warm. I walk down 50th toward the subway, and I'm like, I'm warm. It's not cold. I come home. I'm walking up. That wind is just cutting through you, coming off the water, and you're like, it feels good out. This is great. And I'm just lying to myself, hoping that this hope, will, this hope of warmth will show up sometime. And it doesn't. Maybe it's a little mental trick I use, but Peter's like, you don't have to act like that. You don't have to just hope for hope. Hope actually shows up in your life. And look at verse 4 and 5 and see how it says it here. He says, it is like an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So first thing he says, he says, there is a hope for our future. You want to have a hope for our future. Now, many in our culture struggle to believe that there is something beyond these mortal days that we spend here on earth. I can, I can understand that struggle. I wasn't there at creation. I can't tell you exactly how it happened. I've never died, so I can't speak with personal authority about what happens after we die. So to say that we have a hope in the future heaven can sometimes fall flat. It can fall flat even with those of us who follow Christ because it seems so distant, so indescribable, and so different than now. But that is what hope is in its true essence. It's a belief that something that is not here today will be here tomorrow. We hope for a better job, better health, better relationships. We hope for a spouse. We hope for children, grandchildren. We hope for security, stability, peace. These are things that maybe are not in our life today that we want tomorrow or one day. And we can debate the existence of God and of heaven and of afterlife. And I can't stand up here and unfurl to you proof that these exist. But I can tell you this. In my life, I've never experienced greater pleasure, peace, meaning, or hope than why I've placed my faith and my hope in something beyond me in my creator, in God, who manifested himself in Christ. I've never had more pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. I can't find it in a relationship with someone else here on this earth. Do I find part of it? Yes. Do I find pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope with my wife and my kids and my friends? Yes. But does it fail me? It does. I've never had my hope in God lost in the experience of pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. Because I've chosen to place my hope in him. When I place my hope in God, I start to see his reality and his presence in creation like never before. I see him revealed through science, not disproven by it. I see his beauty in all of creation. I see his love expressed through other people that pour into my life and help me through personal trials. I see his grace in the removal of guilt and shame from my life. Faith in God allows me to see God with its strengths, and with hope in him. See him. And this hope that Peter says is like an inheritance. It's yours. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's being guarded for you. Nothing's getting to it. No circumstance can conquer it. No person can steal it. No evil can mar it. There is a hope for your future. And I'm glad that Peter starts there. Because sometimes we get so tied up 
and the circumstances and the mire and the pit of today that we need something to look forward to, something to pull us out of there. Maybe you've had those hopeless days, hopeless months, hopeless seasons of your life, and you need something to look up toward. But I love that Peter doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, Then in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what we find next, and I just hope for our future, we find hope for our trials, hope for today. I'm so thankful that we have a future hope, but I'm also grateful that I don't have to wait until after I die to experience it. Peter is clear that there is a hope for today and every trial that you face. Hope isn't the ability to avoid trials or difficulty or circumstances. Instead, hope gives us the ability to endure and overcome those circumstances. He says this kind of hope, this kind of inheritance is more precious than gold. Here's what he's saying here. People who own gold in those days, just like people who own gold today, who have the money, there's things they can choose to bypass. There's difficulties they can go around. Something comes in their life, they can bribe their way out of it, pay their way out of it. They get arrested for something, they know somebody, they can put a little money, they can go around. Peter's saying, look, true hope is not when you can bribe your way or pay your way around something. It's when you learn to walk through it with endurance and with strength. You see, character is not grown, shaped, and defined by our ability to bypass difficulties with our material possessions. Instead, character is developed when we allow our hope that we have through God's mercy to become activated in our lives. Hope is like the secret weapon that you and I have to change our view and change our perspective. A lot of you know I grew up in the South and in Georgia, and one of the things that was big down there, I don't think it's too big up here, was this uh, called wrestling. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it's this weird sport on TV where these two grown men in tights get a, get a thing and fight each other for entertainment. And, and I remember watching, we, my, sometimes we'd go over to a friend's house and they'd have these WWE, WWF wrestling shows on. And the fun ones to watch for me were the tag team ones. So there were two people. There were two guys fighting, and there was a guy in each corner. And a guy would get into trouble, and if he could reach out and tag the other guy's hand, he would come flying into the ring, like get on the top ropes, come flying in and just crush the other guy. And then they would get so close sometimes, and you're like, come on, reach it. You know, you're like, get in there. And like finally their fingers would touch, and man, the tide would just turn. And then, the, you know, it started happening again. The other guy would get down. And here's, we think God's like that. Like God's in our corner. Like if we can just reach out enough and touch him, he'll come in. And save us. And I want you to hear something this morning. Hope is this. Hope is not having God in your corner. Hope is knowing that God is already in the ring with you. He's already there. Whatever trial you're facing, whatever thing you're walking through, he's not waiting for you to do enough to reach out to him. He is there in an instant. He's already there. You don't have to tag him in. He is there. He's present for our trials and for today verse 8 and 9 say this then through you we have not though we have not seen him you love him though you do not see him you believe in him 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is this, the salvation of your souls. The last hope that we have is this is hope for our souls. Peter closes this explanation of what hope does by going inward. Our future is secure, our trials can be faced, and now our souls can be saved. This is what the true outcome of hope is for you. It's freedom. Two things can happen to our souls without hope. One, we can feel trapped inside of our own selves. We know our brokenness of our hearts. We know our shortcomings, our flaws in our character, the pieces of me that we think no one will like and no one accept, and we hide them. We create this personal prison to live in, an alternate reality, a persona that is acceptable to excite society, and we live hidden in this prison. Our second, if I don't have hope, I can live without restraint. With no hope, I can end up just not caring what anybody else thinks and doing whatever I want to do. I show no regard for anyone else's feelings or beliefs, and I, I become the protagonist of every story, and I create the rules that everyone else must live by. Neither of these are freeing for your soul. In one instance, I'm the prisoner following someone else's rules, and in the other one, I'm the jailer making sure everybody else follows my rules. And you know what's true about the prisoner and the jailer? They're both in prison. They're both there. And that's not what God's called us to. True hope in God is freedom. Free to be who he created you to be and free to let others be who he created them to be. Does this mean I can do whatever I want with no regard for God or anyone else? Absolutely not. It means, though, that as I find my hope in God, the upright views of my life become clear. The paths of truth are revealed. The signs of peace are manifested in my life. I'm not trying to live up to a standard or some moral code. Instead, I'm letting hope in God be the key that sets my soul free. I think sometimes we think like this. Knowing God and getting into heaven is like going to an amusement park and thinking, I must be this tall to ride this ride. We think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to have this measuring stick. He's going to say, did you do enough good? Did you give enough? Did you go to church enough? Did you pray enough? Did you do all these things? And you're like, oh my gosh, you're one inch short. Too bad. What a horror that would be. And make a great horror film. Right? I mean, just this idea of, I was just one deed short. That's it. And now I'm banished from heaven. I'm, I, I can't get in. That's not what God calls us to. You see, it's not about us making a pathway to heaven and to God. It's understanding that God has already made a pathway to us. He's already prepared the way. And that's what holiness, that's where we lead to holiness. It's this idea that now that I've experienced hope, I get to walk in the holiness of God's presence. The things I desire becomes what God desires. The the work of my hands become what God would have me to do. The my actions toward others are changed. So I want to close with this question today. Will you stop trying to act holy and start embracing hope? Stop trying to act holy and start embracing hope. Follow God isn't about determining if certain actions are right or wrong. It's about embracing the hope 
we have in him. Letting that flower in your soul and change who you are. This is the distinctiveness of Christianity compared to many other religious systems. Our ability to prove ourselves to God doesn't come from our good works, our holiness. Instead, it comes from the power of the resurrection, Jesus Christ, our hope. Would you stop trying to make a path to God and begin to walk freely on the path that he has already created for you? With your head held high toward this light of joy and peace and grace that only he can give. There is no shame in following God. There is no shame in submitting to him. There is hope and peace for your soul. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me?